This CBF podcast conversation is presented to you by Fuller Seminary. Fuller Seminary's MA in Theology and Ministry offers a practice-focused theology education. Study online or on campus and learn from Fuller seasoned scholar practitioners and apply what you're learning to your own context. Whatever your ministry goals, Fuller Seminary's MA in Theology and Ministry will help you take the next steps in your vocation. For more information, visit fuller.edu backslash M-A-T-M degree. That's fuller.edu backslash M-A-T-M degree. Since 2016, CBF has brought you over 100 episodes of interviews with authors and practitioners for conversations that matter. These stories of creativity and innovation have garnered weekly support from around the United States and the world. We are inviting you, the listeners, to join us in connecting with the podcast. Become a monthly listener supporter and receive some perks, including name recognition on the podcast, questions for upcoming guests, free books from the podcast, joining the podcast for an interview, and a VIP experience with the General Assembly podcast guest. There are five levels of listener support, starting at $5 per month. For less than the cost of a pumpkin spice latte, you will be featured by name on the weekly podcast episode. For more information and to join the community of listener supporters, visit cbf.net slash podcast support. This is the Cooperative Baptist Fellowship's Conversations. We are bringing you stories from across the fellowship through interviews with people doing groundbreaking work and renewing God's world. Ideas, stories, and innovation from ministers, authors, and practitioners from across the fellowship and beyond. This is Andy Hale. We are excited to launch this new podcast listener support project. We hope you'll visit cbf.net backslash podcast support for finding out ways of how you can support the podcast, but get stuff in return, like books from our guests here on the podcast, like sending in questions for upcoming guests, like joining me on an actual interview with one of our guests. And of course, the VIP experience at this summer's General Assembly by joining me with whoever we bring in for the podcast stage. And now, on to our conversation. This week's CBF Podcast Conversation is brought to you by CBF Advocacy. CBF Advocacy is excited to announce two Advocacy in Action opportunities in 2020. Advocacy in Action will be returning to Washington, D.C. on March 9th through the 12th, 2020, after a wonderful event in New York City. CBF's Advocacy's annual event will include popular staples such as participation meetings with congressional offices and opportunities to hear about advocacy efforts with CBF partners in Washington. In 2020, Advocacy in Action will include more experiential opportunities, including a special tour at the National Museum of African American History and Culture. Registration for this event will be capped at 60 and opens September the 30th, 2019. Visit cbf.net backslash advocacy in action for more information about housing options, registration, and event details. For the first time ever, CBF's Advocacy is happy to announce a regional Advocacy in Action event in conjunction with CBF Heartland. Advocacy in Action Heartland will be February the 8th through the 10th, 2020 in Jefferson City, Missouri, co-hosted by CBF Heartland, First Baptist Jefferson City, CBF, and Word and Way. 
with a focus on equipping individuals to advocate for their state and local governments and finding alternatives to payday loans, Advocacy and Action Heartland promises to be an event you won't want to miss. Our guest for this week's CBF podcast conversation is Dr. David King. David is the director of the Lake Institute on Faith and Giving and an assistant professor of philanthropic studies. He's got a new book out, God's Internationalist. David, thank you for joining the conversation. Yeah, thanks for having me, Andy. It's great to be with you. Now, you know, most of us and probably, you know, professionally, you're best known for your years, uh, you know, coordinating the New Church Start program for CBF. But, uh, you know, you've gone on to do some some other things, including, you know, uh, teaching in Memphis. Uh, but tell us a little bit more about uh, about the Lake Institute. Yeah, Lake Institute is just such an interesting organization. I don't know any other organizations really like it. It's not something that I thought I would be doing when I was working on my PhD and helping uh, with, uh, with church starts at CBF there in, in the Atlanta offices. But we're embedded within um, the School of Philanthropy uh, at Indiana University. And we're the, uh, well, we say we're the best school of philanthropy um, because we're the only school of philanthropy in the world that can uh, that offers a, a bachelor's, master's, and PhD in philanthropic studies. So my role is, is to be on the faculty and teach courses on religion and giving, um, but really directing the Lake Institute is the bulk of my work. And, and what we do, we've been here for since 2002, so embedded within the university, but really with the role of reaching out uh, into um, practitioner-focused organizations. So most of our work is working with denominations, with congregations, faith-based nonprofits, theological education, to work on questions about stewardship and fundraising. We work most often with clergy pastors, bringing these very difficult conversations uh, to the fore and thinking theologically about how we can frame those conversations to, I would say, continue to develop generosity and giving as a part of discipleship for those that are entrusted to our care uh, and bringing these topics that really most people don't want to talk about, money and giving, <laughs> together. Uh, and the strange thing is we get to do that while rooted in a, in a state university. But actually, I'm in more churches, more theological schools now than when I was a seminary professor six or seven years ago. So it's been a great pleasure and a unique type of place to be here in Indianapolis. So the students who are studying under you, what do they tend to go on to do? A lot of our master's students is a professional degree, so it would be a master's in philanthropic studies, might be like an MBA, a master's in nonprofit management, or even an MDiv. So many of them go on to, to be fundraisers within organizations. Some will go and be an executive director, uh, uh, a staff member within a, a nonprofit, uh, and some will go on and be maybe work on as a program officer in a foundation, sort of giving the money away and not raising the money. Typically, most, most folks go on to, to work in nonprofits in some form. A lot of my PhD students now, um, a couple of them had actually been pastors in the past. And um, one who just graduated and is employed by Duke Divinity School, working with um, theological students there. Others are working towards uh, sort of in a faith-based nonprofit setting on micro um, enterprise in the developing world. As you uh, think around the work, you, you talk about you're there, you're in uh, local congregations a lot, but how do you think your work um, most affects local congregations? 
Well, I think the work that we do at Lake in particular, it's a topic that um, most people who find us who are looking for help here, it's a, it's, um, they're, they're looking for some specific fixes. Maybe their budget is struggling. Maybe um, this is a weak part of their own congregational life. It's a subject that, that, quite frankly, you know, I never spent much time on in seminary. I didn't get the training that I needed. Uh, in theological education to think about how to administer and raise money within a, in a church. And so oftentimes it's a great level playing field. So we, we have uh, from the far left to the far right, and sometimes we're in the same room. Um, I was at a class just a few weeks ago where we were teaching. We had some Unitarian Universalists, some Southern Baptists, some PCA Presbyterians, and a whole bunch of UCC pastors. And we could agree to disagree on all sorts of things, but we agreed that we all were struggling with how to talk about money, finances, and meaning in our churches around these topics of giving and money. And so it becomes a kind of a good, um, great equalizer uh, and opens up oftentimes really honest and vulnerable conversations. If you peel back the onion layers just a bit, it might be about how can we raise more money in our church? But most often you get to that organizational cultural question about, you know, what is our organization? What is, how are we sharing leadership? How are we communicating our mission? And those are the questions that we want to sort of uh, talk about at a deeper level. So I think that makes us unique. Uh, we um, can help, org you know, congregations think a lot about capital campaigns and annual stewardship campaigns, but we're not going to give you the top just expect to get the top five tips to make this better. Um, this is a slow change and organizational shift uh, that we're talking um, with people about, and it's a theological one. So we don't um, we don't sort of skimp on the fact that this is a, a deep organizational question. Don't promise that we can make it all better, but if we're willing to do that hard work together, then we think that makes the, the bigger benefit overall. Mm. Well, I know, you know, as of when this episode comes out, it'll be a, a couple of weeks. Um, Y'all released um, uh, certainly a, uh, a pretty significant study um, that will be a huge resource for congregations. So um, the Lake Institute uh, released the National Study of, of Congregations Economic Practices. And the study found that while congregations remain the largest recipient of charitable donations at 29%, um, attendance and giving to church has declined 50% over the last 30 years. So talk to us about the study and its goals. Yeah, this, this study has been in works for several years for us at Lake Institute. And, and, and we, we do pride ourselves at being sort of practitioner focused. So most of the staff of Lake Institute, um, our ordained pastors have worked in the local church, come from that faith perspective, but we are embedded in a research institution. So one of our distinctives is that we have research behind um, the way that we, we teach and coach um, churches and, and nonprofits on stewardship and fundraising. But the problem with congregations is we just don't know that much about the economic practices of local congregations, principally because all other nonprofits are reporting to the IRS each year. They're filing 990 uh, returns that sort of say how much did they bring in, how much did they spend. How much do they pay their CEO? Congregations don't do that. A very, very small percentage do. And that's, that's by design. Uh, that's not going to change anytime soon. But that often leads what we know about what's happening with congregations at a really small uh, 
we, we really just don't know that much. So we think we have some assumptions, but they're not tested. So what we did was we built a, a, a nationally representative study. We have over 1,200 congregations in this study. Um, we asked a representative sample of Americans if they went uh, to some um, religious service over the last year that got their church nominated. Um, and I say church, we really, it's congregation. So this is across uh, not only the Christian tradition, but all religious traditions are included in this study. Uh, and we got um, really uh, great deep information about not only how money comes in, how money is managed, and then where does it go? So we talk about these in the three categories of receive, manage, and spend. So we have some very particular um, findings. We think about how money comes in, how does the congregation manage it, talk about it, ask for um, support, and where does it go? How much do we spend on pastors versus um, sort of maintaining those facilities for our congregations. And we can begin to start to say what we think is happening trend-wise. Um, if there is a rise of the nuns, if more people are disaffiliating than are affiliating with our religious traditions, and membership and attendance continues to increase, what does that mean for the financial uh, sustainability of our congregations? There's over 300,000 congregations dotting the landscape of almost every community in this country that are significant um, community, um, I would say advocates and also sort of resources for everything that's happening in local communities. Uh, and we can't afford to lose that many of them. Um, but what does the financial models of our congregations look like today? So how should this study be used by local congregations? Well, I think that this, um, we ask uh, the head pastor to fill out this survey. So uh, usually it was um, the, the clergy person at the top of the congregation, maybe an executive pastor in a large congregation that filled out this survey <clears throat> around the financial practices of a congregation. But the way we've written the findings of this report, we think this is something that first all leaders of the congregation should be reading. So uh, we've got tons of infographics, a lot of um, sort of bulleted findings so that this can be consumed and used by finance committees, stewardship committees, staff within a congregation. What we hope is that this is partly saying there's a lot of diversity in, in our congregations and how we ask for money, how it's managed and where it goes. But there's also a lot of things we have in common. In many ways, if you find yourself in a place where you're struggling financially, maybe, over the past few years of the congregation, I want you to hear that you're not alone. Many congregations are in that same space. But there's some quick fixes, some easy fixes, um, as far as how to help facilitate and foster that giving, maybe making digital giving options available to those people um, that are in your pews. If they don't have money or checkbooks um, in their pockets, it's hard to make a gift for many people. How do we ritualize that giving? You know, just to, to sort of consume the report, to think about it, think about your own practices, what you see is happening, put yourself in other congregations' shoes, so to speak, and then think about over time, slowly, what are some, what's some changes that I can make this quarter or this next year to begin to think about a healthier way of asking for and stewarding those gifts that come into a congregation? This may be a selfish question, but 
any other religious outlet besides the CBF podcast doing news coverage today on this specific study? We've got a, We've got. We're we're talking to our uh, our friends at Christianity Today and uh, a few other places uh, that are connected in the Christianity Today landscape. But but no, I could say um, besides uh, CBF podcast and our colleagues at Faith and Leadership at Duke Divinity are the first two outlets to get their hands uh, on the study and to report uh, and talk about it from our folks here at the School of Philanthropy in Lake Institute today. So, you know, I pride the CBF podcast for for scooping many of the big media outlets on this particular (laughs) study. You've heard it here, folks. We are about breaking breaking news. Unfortunately, this episode won't go up for a couple of weeks <laughs> on the day that after it releases. So. Well, let's switch gears a little bit. Um, you've got a new book out, uh, God's Internationalist, World Vision, and the Age of Evangelical Humanitarianism. This book is a historical glance into the global Christian organization. You wrote, a single snapshot cannot capture the current world vision. The organization conjures up contradictory images. So let's start there. What about world vision conjures up contradictory images? Well, this is kind of a, a you know, maybe a, the proverbial metaphor for uh, many people having different <clears throat> um, handholds uh, sort of on the elephant, thinking about what, what this organization is. And so from different vantage points, if you're a, maybe just a, a sort of a, a supporter of world vision, you've been a child sponsor, you ran into them at a contemporary Christian music concert and um at the intermission at the michael w smith concert there was world vision or compassion asking you to sponsor a child you might have been compelled to sponsor a child there's a picture on your refrigerator but you don't know much about that organization you know you're helping this child with food and education and uh, health but we don't know you know what is world vision so and maybe if you see it in the developing world you see a very sophisticated one of the largest relief and development organizations um, providing um, the latest um, uh, AIDS, HIV AIDS care in your community. Uh, some might be critics because they say, well, how can you bring faith into this relief and development world? Um, are, you, are you asking people to, um, are you evangelizing them before you share uh, resources? So. There are, there are proponents, there are critics, there are most people are somewhere in between, uh, and you don't have one story. The story in the U.S. looks a lot different than the story in U.K. or Australia, where the organization looks a little bit more secular uh, than it does in sort of the evangelical subculture of the U.S. So the organization is too big to tell one story, uh, and change over time as a historian that's part of what i want to look at is it helps tell maybe a little bit of our own story and mission you know thinking about an organization like cbf and their own missiology how it's changed over time uh, world vision helps us see some of that too this podcast is presented to you by the center for congregational health at the center we believe god has called and empowered congregations to change the world For 25 years, Center consultants, coaches, and educators have been supporting congregations, clergy, and lay leaders as they meet the ongoing challenges of congregational life, including training ministers to manage transition, helping congregations work through polarizing conflict, coaching clergy to discover and utilize their gifts for ministry, and assisting congregations in discerning God's call to future missions and ministry. 
Center consultants and coaches don't dispense expert advice. Instead, they recognize the uniqueness of each congregation and work to create the space needed for God's people to discern and follow the leading of the Holy Spirit. Please visit our website, healthychurch.org, to learn more about the center and find the help you need in order to thrive in missions and ministry. Well, let's take a step back from you know the book itself and its content. Why did you choose to, to take on this historical work? Well, for me, World Vision was, is a good example um, of, of telling one story to tell a broader a story that I wanted to tell. So as a kid who grew up as a Southern Baptist um, in Alabama, uh, there were, I sort of was in that majority culture. And in college, I went to Stanford University. I w- went overseas um, to Gaza uh, for a summer, really to experience difference. And so that was an eye-opening experience for me to be sort of in that contested space in Israel-Palestine um, as one of a handful of Americans in the entire country and to see what the world looks like from a different perspective. That really led me in seminary and beyond to really think about, you know, the global Christian story and what it was looking like. And, and while that oftentimes led me back to stories about missions and missionaries, in many ways, I was thinking that these big relief and development organizations have in some ways taken some of the role of the mission movement that many of our denominations, uh, they were on the center of many of our denominations. And so organizations like World Vision or Compassion, I think we're starting to kind of become maybe the main actors helping to shape the direction of how local Christians here in the state were starting to think about their interactions with the world. Uh, and at the same time, it helped me with, um, tell a story that I was um, extremely invested in, which is that when you tell the story of American Christianity, you can't tell it only within the borders of the United States, but you have to really open your eyes to seeing how those interchanges with the rest of the world helps reshape and retell that story in a different way. One of the fascinating uh, chapters as I was reading the book um, was on how the Vietnam War redefined uh, World Vision's global engagement. You wrote, uh, Pierce remained firmly committed to his evangelical identity, but grew increasingly frustrated with fellow evangelicals' limited vision abroad as they questioned his willingness to partner with outsiders and engage in social ministries beyond evangelicalism. Talk to us uh, about the impact of the Vietnam War, War on world vision, but also take us a little deeper into how world events should affect the mechanisms of missions. Well, yeah, that's a that's a great question, and it's it's sort of uh, I think some layers to it. So, uh, Bob Pierce, who you mentioned, was the founder of World Vision. Strangely enough, he's he's quite the character. In the first really third or more of the book, really tell starts to tell his story, and he was a contemporary of Billy Graham when Billy Graham started, and really kind of uh, sort of globe trotted the world, uh, being a global evangelist. He found himself in China before China was closed uh, to missions in 1949. He followed into the Korean War. Um, so he really followed the, the Cold War hotspots from China to Korea to Vietnam, Cambodia, and Laos. Now he was also an eccentric personality. He wanted to run the organization himself, his way. And at some point as World Vision grew, they couldn't run it out of one person's checkbook anymore. And so World Vision parted ways with their founder. And Bob Pierce actually left the organization um, in, 
in an uproar. He eventually came and mentored a young man named Franklin Graham and started another organization called Samaritan's Purse. And the difference, as you might see, between the, the, the ethos of world vision today versus maybe the um, more doctrinaire or politically um, motivated way that Franklin Graham presents himself um, as, as the face of the organization, even if Samaritan's Purse may be doing work um, uh, differently than Franklin himself might be uh, putting himself out into the political space. Uh, you might get a picture of how the organizations are different. Um, but Bob Pierce models for evangelicals after World War II in the 50s and early 60s, oftentimes a real uh, worry are uh, against moving away from evangelical prime uh, focused mission work. So the work is to save souls, it's to preach the gospel, and it's the mainliners of the ecumenical church that are trying to do social service work. It's a clear split there. This is we're doing this and not that. But Bob Pierce and World Vision were an early model of evangelicals trying to come to terms with how to do a both and. You can't preach to somebody whose stomach is hungry. Um, and so how to do those in, in concert. Now World Vision, by the time they get to Vietnam, they are being accused of being a bit naive to the to the political forces that are that are all you know there there's no um, easy good and bad in the Vietnam War, for instance. So many of the other organizations that are there, um, Mennonite Central Committee, Catholic Charities, were starting to push back against U.S. Um, own military and foreign policy um, because the U.S. was using many of these nonprofits, these NGOs. Um, to do some, to clean up some of their messes when they were attacking uh, North Vietnam or going on um, attacks into Laos or Cambodia, uh, and so they refused to go. But World Vision decided, yeah, we'll keep we'll keep going in that way. And I think Pierce saw that there was no easy answer, and he realized for the first time to, to grow as an organization, World Vision would have to take federal um, aid. So another big issue for many mission organizations is, do we partner with government? And if we partner with other foundations or governments or international organizations, does that limit um, who, we, um, who we can say that we are and what types of things we can do? And all kinds of faith-based organizations have their place on the spectrum of how much they're willing to give up in order to partner with um, state or federal or international resources. World Vision had to come to terms with professionalizing and doing this work at a higher level maybe than they had done in the past. And also the scale grew as they began to take on more and more federal contracts. But that led them to, to, to change over time, ultimately allowed them to grow to the scale that they are today. But it was, wasn't without some cost and benefit on both sides. If we think about what that means for uh, evangelical organizations or just mission organizations today, how we should be following what sort of the, the, the news cycle or sort of breaking events. I think that's, I think um, what we know is that there are faith communities locally on the ground, indigenized in almost every part of the world. And oftentimes faith communities can um, be better equipped to provide aid on the ground than many of our most massive NGOs, like a Red Cross. So 
I would want to give to CBF Global Missions or to UMCOR or to other groups that I know have partnerships on the ground um, so that we don't have to just give to a, a behemoth organization that may or may not be able to handle the transportation of those goods to get them where they need to be. But I know that I've got some folks there already in the Bahamas that are trusted relational connections to us and that they're going to do the right thing. They know the people. They know what they need and how to get it to them. I think that's the great benefit of religious organizations in this work, one of many. I mean, um, the motivations for why people give are important too, but that's just, they're just all, these religious communities are all across the world. Let's trust them to kind of partner and do this work together. As we kind of survey the world, which sounds like such a, a silly thing to say, but What's what's happening in our world today that mission organizations like CBF uh, should be involved in and potentially affected and transformed by? Oh, that's a great question, and I, I'm not sure I can um, fully rant, fully answer it. But I think that um, I I would keep my eye on what's happening. Um, and, and have conversation partners, like I was just mentioning, with those people on the ground. So uh, I would be thinking about um, health care. I would be thinking about economic empowerment. And so we know that if you can work directly with women and children, for instance, this, you have a, just such a higher return on that investment many times. Uh, and so I think realizing that while long-term investment of um, missionaries and personnel is it important to build those relationships that we can entrust those dollars in organizations that are doing that work on the ground and empower people to do that work that are already embedded in those communities. I've been thinking about the financial models that are involved too. So how can we invest in micro lending, other types of impact investing um, as a part of the mission strategies that, that we're looking to do? Um, there are immediate needs that we automatically have to reach out to. When there's a disaster in the world, we need to be ready and motivated uh, to help on the ground. But as we're ready to help in those situations, what are the long-term um, challenges that we can help? And maybe we take, uh, I think, several of them and put our interest and energy there. Uh, try not to be all things to all people but come up with an idea of here's three or four that we think we can really make some, um, make a movement on over time with our people in our communities uh, and trust that the rest of the body of Christ can also come alongside us with those issues, but all the many of things that are there um, that we need to address as well. The evangelical movement of, our childhood is is no more. Uh, it's splintered. It's a, a sectarian identity that I think its splintered nature threatens its existence. So how do how do you see organizations like World Vision navigating these waters ahead without such a, a dominant support of evangelical base? Yeah, that's a great question. I think if if I had to if I've had to do it once, I've had to do it a hundred times since I've uh, finished this book, which is sort of define what is an evangelical, what do we mean by it, and does it have any value uh, anymore? Um, oh, that's a, that's a great question. I think um, scholars 
And I would say pollsters and journalists in particular are not giving the word up. Um, it means something to them, particularly in post 2016 when pollsters would talk about the 81% of white evangelicals who would vote for Trump. So it's a word that may still be um, uh, used even if ill-defined to sort of talk about a group of people. Uh, I think a group like World Vision, uh, they don't use the word very much. Uh, they're not going to shy away from that, that ethos, but they're going to use a, a general sort of just um, modifier like Christian. Uh, what I would do, you know, what, if in, in an organization like World Vision was not think so much about labels and terms and more about how to describe the actions and the work that we're doing. And so <clears throat> the types of um, born again uh, evangel uh, evangelical uh, movement oriented traditions that sort of are action oriented that are worked on a, um, a rebirth as well as, you know, not just being born again, but also working towards sort of more holistic gospel change. I think you can describe through the actions on the ground um, better than you can try to put it in a paragraph in a mission statement. I think younger generations don't really want to be defined by those uh, terms. And so let's not, let's, I, I don't want to throw them away, but I, I wouldn't spend a lot of time trying to argue about elbowing out space in a particular tradition or another. I get to the work and I build partnerships. So um, boundaries seem to be uh, more and more difficult to hold. But let's use those as bridges to bring other people to the table. Just because I'm an evangelical organization, a Catholic organization, a reformed organization doesn't mean that I can't have partnerships across the Christian, across other religious or even secular divides. Organization like World Vision has found a way to partner with all sorts of organizations. Many others can too. I think churches can too. There's no need to try to do everything within our own little circles. Let's find ways to partner and make that happen beyond those labels. In 2018, uh, Rich Stearns stepped down as World Vision's president after 20 years. And in his final year, Stearns was one of the major players in the shift to hire LGBTQ personnel, only to rescind the decision after major donors threatened to withdraw. You know, with decisions like this, what do you think the future of World Vision will be? Uh, what's its trajectory? Well, this this um, particular example that was, you know, uh, that made um, headline news when, when the organization basically made a decision to open up their hiring policy to those um, staff in same-sex marriages, which were legal in the state of uh, Washington and where World Vision United States headquarters are, uh, and then immediately flip-flop on that decision within 48 hours. Uh, this was an eye-opening um, response to me as someone who had spent, you know, six or eight years studying the organization by that point. I could have, I could have um, um, made sense of Rich Stern's decision and thought, okay, the board had counted the cost. They saw which way the culture was moving and they made this decision and, and they thought they might be on the right side of history in the next, you know, decade with among evangelical organizations. But then for them to flip backwards, I think they heard the backlash from their um, denomination, uh, Assemblies of God being the biggest one, and a lot of their rank and file donors that they maybe had moved uh, away from the sort of touchstone issues. 
of their donor base. So I was quite surprised when they flip-flopped so quickly. Felt like they maybe had gotten a bit out of touch with who their rank-and-file donors might be. Um, I think it, it allowed them or forced them to double down on their evangelical identity here in the United States in ways that they may not have um, done uh, a decade ago. They buy a lot more advertising in Christianity today than they used to. They might uh, find other ways um, to, to sort of um, point out their evangelical bona fides. But at the same time, I think they've tried to move past that issue and not let it define them. For a new generation that in uh, many ways, not that this issue hasn't um, gone away, but doesn't become the, maybe for many, at least younger Christians, um, the issue that defines who or who they will not support. I think uh, World Vision is going to we'll have to revisit these kinds of questions about uh, who they want to be, how they translate what they do as far as and who their identity is as a religious organization. Uh, I wish we wouldn't necessarily be defined by hot button issues like this because of all of the good work that many organizations do with a variety of uh, uh, theological convictions. But uh, at present, these particular issues continue to, to, to divide organizations and have uh, cost World Vision uh, quite a lot that I think they've, they have tried to move beyond, but they're still feeling some of the backlash from. And what do you think other organizations can learn from World Vision's uh, major shif shifts and changes over the last 70 years? Well, one thing that I think is important and I try to bring up in the book is that the general story that we oftentimes hear is we know of religious organizations that grow, they get bigger, they professionalize, and then they lose their religious identity. Think about the YMCA, for example. So we've lost the the C in the YMCA has lost its Christian identity. Uh, that could have been the story, or you could tell that story about World Vision, for instance. It was a very small, evangelistic, almost, and uh, it was run and started by an evangelist. And then as they grew and they became more sophisticated in their practices of relief and development, they sort of lost that touch with their um, sort of Christian evangelistic identity. But it's much more complicated than that. Religious identities of our organizations are a huge important motivating factor for why people might give, why they're going to work for an organization, what that organization is going to do. But it's not that an organization is religious or secular. So for a nonprofit, for a congregation, it's a wide spectrum for what, that, what, what being religious might mean. So instead of moving beyond, so instead of just staying with that label, what I would really, uh, less than I would, um, push out to many organizations is, is to help people think about what that means for your organization. If you're a church, what does that, what does what does Baptist mean for you? If you are a faith-based nonprofit, what does it mean that you have a faith-based Christian identity? How does that fit with your values and your actions and your practices, um, your staff culture beyond simply what's on your website? So I think I would use it as a tool to investigate and to, to think about not simply that's a label that we put like a, like a fish on the back of our car or a Christian yellow pages where we're looking for a plumber, but how can this actually embolden us to live into our mission and vision and our values? It's not simply a label. It's something that I think should really 
uh, help invigorate our organizations and to be open and honest about what that means for your organization so that those people on your staff, in your pews, in your communities can articulate those things well um, for the betterment of your organization, I think. I think it would empower you and it's, it's a distinct advantage or a unique factor that one should own and use um, to do the work that we feel called to do. As you think about uh, this book, and it's, I mean, it's a, it's a pretty, pretty thorough um, look into the organization. What do you think surprised you the most um, from your work on this book? Well, it was a great, it was a, it was a, it was a challenge in really in many ways to work with World Vision. I mean, they were very generous with their um, resources and their time, uh, but it took, uh, I'd say, a good year for them to trust me with a story. Uh, the fact that I was a Baptist pastor didn't hurt, but uh, thinking about uh, sort of the challenge that I had to continue to work uh, towards was how do you be the, you know, the trusted communicator of someone's story? I think we do this as leaders all the time. When we step into the pulpit, when we give a, a talk about our organization, even if it's a, just a short elevator pitch, we're entrusted with other people's stories. And so how can we do right by telling someone else a story? How can we tell it fairly? How can we help tell a larger story out of it um, and not uh, squash some people's voices, but help raise other voices that maybe not, don't have the same voice that you do into the conversation. So uh, while I spent a lot of time thinking about it, it was always at the front of my mind, uh, and a, maybe a surprising challenge, uh, the, the weight of being a storyteller of an organization that many people may know, they have some experience with, but don't know deeply. Like most organizations, the people within the, own, within the organization didn't know their own history either. World Vision has 40,000 staff. And very few, few people in an organization that's almost 70 years old know much about those first few decades and how it shaped them. So trying to tell that story without getting stuck in the institutional, um, I liken it to thinking about the church histories that sometimes we have in our, in our church libraries that sort of talk about this pastor did this, this pastor did that. How can we make it a story that really kind of comes off the page, has colorful characters, and tells a larger um, story in context about America, American global Christianity, America um, Christianity and its interactions with global Christianity. Um, so always trying to tell a bigger story was a challenge and a surprising one that I, that I really enjoyed. Well, for those that want to stay connected with David, um, you can check out his work by Googling Lake Institute. I would give you the URL, but there's a lot of dots and it's a little little complicated. Or you can just type in, what is it, rolltide.com? Is that your other one? That you... <laughs> I, I don't think that's mine. It may be yours. But oh, no, okay. I'm, a, I'm, a war, I'm a war eagle kind of guy, but, but you can find us at, at Lake Institute on Twitter or on Facebook or me at, at David P. King one uh, on Twitter. And we are engaged in really kind of putting those resources out there. So for us at Lake Institute, particularly on the, the work we do with faith-based organizations, it's something that we try to curate the best resources that we can find and make them available to congregations and nonprofits and other organizations. So, you know, we'd love to continue to stay in contact uh, with anybody who has some questions on these issues. And, and we're excited actually as Lake Institute to, to have a long partnership with CBF in particular, um, working on issues of economic 
uh, the economic challenges facing pastors and, and ministers and those issues. That's been uh, a delight to come back to my home denomination and, and be able to engage with CDF in that way. We can go out and purchase God's Internationalists wherever books are sold. David, thank you for uh, your good work and thinking through and inspiring individuals and organizations and congregations to be generous with their resources for the betterment of our neighbors. Thanks, Andy. It's really been a pleasure to be with you and grateful for your questions and, and the conversation. Well, that's it. That's our conversation. Be sure to support our annual sponsors by visiting their websites at fuller.edu and healthychurch.org. Check out cbf.net for information about our church starters, field personnel, advocacy work, chaplains, and much more. Oh, and uh, one more thing. I don't think we've mentioned it on the podcast before, but visit cbf.net backslash podcast support for ways that you can contribute to the CBF podcast conversations and get some pretty cool stuff in return.